Today's message is going to be a little different. We're taking a break from our chapter studies of Revelation, and I'm doing this for two reasons. So one is we were scheduled to talk about chapters 18 and 19. The problem is these two chapters are straight up R-rated. Like they literally need a parental advisory sticker on them. And I was sitting here last, last week seeing how in the world am I going to preach this with a bunch of kids in the sanctuary? And, 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 if, and if you're not sure, just go look at chapter 18, start reading, and yeah, it gets pretty graphic. And then second, I had a really troubling experience last week while preparing for last week's message, and I wanted to share that with you. And so today isn't really going to be a sermon. It's more of a story. It's the story of some conflict that went inside me and started up last week. It's the story of some doubts and some questions that I had a really hard time wrestling and reconciling with. And, and I think it's really important to be honest and I think to be transparent, especially up here as, as your pastor, however you're watching and listening to us. And so... So this story is going to be about pretty much the last seven or eight days of me, and it's a story of faith and some of the new ideas I learned this week. Well, last week while preparing the sermon, I had a minor faith crisis. Not one of those that's going to make me walk away from the faith or the church, but it was enough to rattle me in a way I haven't been rattled in a long time. You see, over the past, the past four weeks of this Revelation series, I've poured myself into 12 chapters of God's wrath and judgment. And that's on sin, evil, and unrepentance. We saw plagues and natural disasters from trumpets, scrolls, bowls. We saw the four horsemen of the apocalypse bringing conquest, war, famine, and death. We saw the dragon and the beast devouring, deceiving, and destroying. And after all of that, it got really hard for me. It got hard intellectually because I was studying and reading so much, but it also got hard emotionally. Like my heart hurt from all of this. So much death, so many plagues, so much destruction, just over and over and over again. And it finally got too much for me, and I broke down. How could a good God do all of this? And more specifically, how does all of this violence in the book of, Recon uh, book of Revelation reconcile with the central and centering image of the slaughtered lamb that brings peace and restoration to the world. And you know, I figured if I was asking those questions, some of you might be asking those questions also. So I thought I'd talk to you about my journey through those questions. See, 
I've studied, I've been to seminary, I've read a bunch of books and things. So I understand, I understand that the ultimate reason behind these acts of judgment is to bring people to repentance and into right relationship with God. So intellectually, I understand that. I also understand the gravity of this because the consequences of unrepentance are eternally horrific. Nonetheless, something was still really unsettling to me. Do the ends justify the means? Do the ends justify the means? It seems like God is inflicting an immeasurable amount of pain on people that he loves and a world he created. See, that doesn't sound like love or goodness or even justice. So God started to actually remind me of the portrayal in the the musical Hamilton, how they portrayed King George III uh, as as an abusive boyfriend. And it was just absolutely brilliant. And so he had lyrics like, because when push comes to shove, I will kill your friends and family to show you of my love. Or the chorus, you'll be back. Soon you'll see, you'll remember you belong to me. But what's even more troubling, this is the same rationalization, the ends justify the means, that has been used by nearly every one of the now disgraced megachurch pastors who've been involved in scandals of abusing and silencing women in the name of kingdom ministry. No, no, you, you, you can't say anything about fill in the name. Look at all the, the, the good things the ministry is doing. It'll ruin the ministry. The ends justify the means. The ends justify the means is always a dangerous proposition. So is God's work in Revelation really all that different from the Crusades where soldiers tortured and forced confessions to supposedly save people from hell? And all of these were questions that were swirling around in my head last week and over the weekend. And I didn't know what to do with all this. I didn't know how to make sense of it. So that last Sunday night is when I I pitched to, to Pastor Kong the idea, hey, could I take a Sunday and just talk about this? And he liked the idea and said yes. And so that brings us, here we are. So Monday morning, I started reading. A lot. I read books and blogs and bumper stickers. I listened to podcasts and sermons. I watched YouTube videos from renowned pastors and crackpots. And I learned a few things over the last week. In particular, I'm gonna, I want to tell you about two of them. And generally, the answers to this question about violence in the Bible or violence in the book of Revelation tend to fall into three 
major categories. I'm going to talk about two of them and then just briefly mention one of them. Um, but before I do that, I realized that I made a critical mistake and I wasn't even aware of it. You see, to understand this mistake, you have to understand me. I, I, I accepted Christ as a teenager in 1986 at a highly evangelical megachurch in Southern California. And this, this church was very dispensationalist. What that means is that they saw the book of Revelation as literal predictive prophecy about the future and the end times of the world. So that's what they believed, so that's what I believed. That was really the only church I knew, so that's what I believed. And I believed that for a good 25 years or so, until I started to discover that there were other ways to look at the book of Revelation, perhaps even more biblically and more faithfully to the text. So then, what I realized was, over the last few weeks studying and preaching on this book, this literalist approach to Revelation started to creep back up in me. That old Greg, that old view of looking at this book in the Bible, started to sneak back up without me even realizing it. And all of a sudden... I was being overwhelmed by literal plagues and literal death. And, and I realized that that's not how you're supposed to look at the book of Revelation. The primary language of the book of Revelation is metaphor and symbols. In fact, I had forgotten what I preached to you back on May 22nd, the very first week of this, ser this series, I forgot the number one principle, that this book uses lots of symbols and metaphor. In fact, I preached these exact words to you back then. The primary language of the revelation is metaphor. It wants to speak to your heart and imagination, not just your head. This book is full of fantastic symbols, images, and animals that are used to convey broader ideas and truths. Don't get stuck on what the text says. Focus on what it means. I was getting stuck on what the text says. I had forgotten the number one rule of understanding the book of Revelation. Pay attention to what the text means. And that's, when I, and that's when I realized this old way of looking at Scripture had snuck back up in me. And that's why it's really important to understand your own history with faith in church. Because it is a part of you. However you grew up, maybe it was going to church Maybe you grew up shaman. Maybe you didn't grow up to church and your family system played a significant way in shaping your belief systems. 
all of those are still a part of you. And unless you understand, unless you go back to be able to move forward, you're going to be stuck in those old ways of thinking that you might not like anymore will still influence you and might even drive the bus while you're sitting in the passenger seat. So that was an interesting thing to realize, that I wasn't, I didn't even take my own advice <laughs> in understanding this very difficult to understand book. So let me shift to a couple of things that I learned this week. As I studied, these are a couple of things to make sense of the violence and the violent imagery in Revelation. And it, this is actually part of a much larger question is, why is there so much violence in the Bible? This is just a subset of it. And so, the, as I mentioned, there were a few different approaches that I found that pastors that I would read or watch would fall into. Now, I'm going to focus in on a couple of them. And this, this isn't a sermon as, as much as just me sharing some thoughts. I'm not going to dive deep into this and, and excuse me, and, and, and read Scripture together and all that, but I'm going to give you some overarching principles that, that I've learned that can maybe help you wrestle with this same questions that I'm wrestling with. And so out of these two ideas, they come from two very different sources and types of Christians along the Christianity spectrum. But both of them are valuable. Neither one of these approaches holds all the truth. They are both true and they are both biblically sound. And so as my general tendency is to resist the, this is the only right answer. Because the truth is anything that's been debated for a few thousand years probably has a couple answers to it. And so... Let me tell you about the first one that I stumbled across. And this one was something I was familiar with. That. I've even preached this idea before. And it's this, that all the violence in the Bible is justified. That all the violence in the Bible is justified. So this is probably the most traditional and conservative approach to answer this question. See, the Bible is clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's clear that there is none righteous. No, not one. There is no one who, do, who does good, not even one. This theme is spoken over and over and over again, all throughout, from Genesis to Revelation. And because of that, because we have all sinned, the painful truth is we all deserve condemnation from a holy God. None of us can escape that. None of us deserve better. Anything we get from God is 100% a gift of his love, grace, and mercy. We don't deserve anything from God. See, whenever you think of the phrase, they got what they deserve, we usually are applying that to someone else. I don't think I've ever sat across the table from someone and, and they say, yeah, 
I kind of got what I deserved. We usually don't apply that to ourselves. We want to apply it to other people. But see, when we look at the Bible, when we understand how broken and selfish, even depraved we are, we understand if we get what we deserve. In essence, none of us deserve heaven. We all deserve hell. But that wasn't God's choice. God loves us so much that he gave his son, Jesus Christ, that whoever, whosoever believes in him will have eternal life. God, by his grace and mercy, has given us something we could never earn and don't deserve. So the violence in the Bible is really what we deserve. So that's one answer to this question. Now, that's not very comforting. It's biblical, but it's not very comforting. And it's very sobering. But it's not the only answer. It's not the only explanation. So the next one comes from Pastor John Piper. If, if you don't know that name, he's a, a very prominent uh, megachurch pastor here in the Twin Cities written extensively, and, and he argues that the violence in the Bible underscores the seriousness of sin, that the violence in the Bible underscores the seriousness of sin. See, the reason there's so much violence in the Bible is because there's so much violence in the world. All throughout Scripture, the effect of moral evil is displayed and symbolized and represented by all kinds of physical evil. Earthquakes, floods, famines, pandemics, wars, all of that is throughout Scripture. And that doesn't even include the horrific treatment of people at the hands of other people. See, remembering that Revelation is heavily symbolic, we get a front row view to the horrific consequences of sin. One author described the book's purpose as this. It was to create a literary, rhetorical, and emotional experience of shock and awe. Yes! That makes sense to me. That's what I was feeling last week. Of shock. Of awe. Of being overwhelmed. And then it hit me. Wait, wait, wait. Does this mean I might be exactly where God wants me to be in reading the book of Revelation? Especially considering... We are about to enter into the third act of the book, the return of Jesus Christ. Maybe this is exactly where God wants me to be. And if you've been overwhelmed by these messages in Revelation, maybe this is exactly where God wants you to be also. 
the violence underscores the seriousness of sin and our desperate need for a savior. Piper used a great analogy that I wanted to share with you. God did it because he knew that people who are dead in their trespasses and sins would never comprehend the moral outrage of treason against God unless they saw it reflected in the physical outrage of violence against people. Nobody loses sleep over their treason against God, but let their physical body be touched with cancer, let their house be touched with rioting, then their emotions really rise up with moral indignation. Violence and suffering exist in the world as a divine witness to the meaning and seriousness and the outrage of sin against God. I found that to be really helpful. I found that to be helpful because it gave me an explanation of what I was feeling. And it even said that might be okay. That might be what God wants for you, Greg. So I allowed myself to feel overwhelmed. I didn't try to minimize it. I didn't try to dismiss it. I allowed myself to feel overwhelmed. Because it might be exactly what God wants for me so that I could move closer to him. So where do I go from here? Well... First is, I, I, I want to read more, because there was still one major idea uh, that, that authors and pastors have talked about, but the truth is I could not understand it in the one week I had between last Sunday and this Sunday. And I tried, man. I read the, the, the author of this, who ironically is the complete counterpart of John Piper, it's Greg Boyd, another local megachurch pastor. And he wrote a 1,500-page book explaining his view of violence in the Bible. Needless to say, I did not read all of that this week. I barely made it through the first chapter. So I'm going I'm to keep reading because the questions are still there. But I'm a little more encouraged today than I was last week. I'm a little less wrecked <laughs> than I was feeling last Sunday. Also, I want to keep reading. I want to keep learning and seeing what other answers people way smarter than me, not just contemporaries, but people throughout history have been asking this question. And church fathers for centuries and millennia have been addressing this question. And I want to dig in and find out how others have answered it. And most importantly, I think I'm ready to teach the book of Revelation again. I can come back next Sunday and we can talk a little bit about chapters 17 and 18 and then we get to move into 19. And that's where it gets exciting. So what about you? What do I hope you take away from all of this, this little story, story time with Pastor Greg? Well, a few things. First, 
that being honest about where you are in your faith is really important. Some of you have been pretending that everything is okay. You come to church, you put on a good smile, but the, in reality, you, on the inside, you're just dying in a pile. And hopefully by, by listening to me share a little bit of my questions and my struggles, it helps to let you know that it's okay to really be honest about where you are in your faith. Second, I hope that you will see that having doubts and questions, even faith crises, is okay. It's okay. God will never strike you down for having questions or doubts. So you need to be like the father of a child who was possessed. And he came to Jesus and cried out to him, said, Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. I think some of you need to pray that prayer. Lord, I do believe, but help my unbelief. And lastly, my hope for you is that when you have doubts and questions and faith crises, you take them to God instead of pulling away from God. That you take them to God instead of pulling away from God. And this, is, this might be one of the most important things you hear this morning. See, the seemingly irreconcilable problem of violence in Scripture has led many people to abandon their faith, to abandon the church. But there are also many people who haven't. And the difference that I've seen over these years, it's all about what you do with your doubts. Do you take them to God? Or do you take them to other people who have the same angers and issues and hang-ups that you have? And when you take them to God, you take those big, soul-rattling questions. God will meet you there. Bring your doubts to God and seek answers from Him. And when you do that, your doubts can actually lead to growth. So I want to finish up here with a little reflection exercise. I would hate to think that my words would be the end-all, be-all of all of this discussion. So I'm going to ask you to write something down. So I want you to pull out your phone, open up your, net, your notes app. You can grab a connection card right in front of you and grab one of the pens. But I want everyone to get ready to write something down. And it's not big. You're not writing a novel or anything. Grab your phone. Grab a piece of paper. You could even write on your bulletin. So here it is. What question or doubt are you holding on to right now? Or maybe it's in this phase of your life. What question or doubt are you holding on to about faith?
It can be anything. It doesn't have to be revelation. It can be anything. What's the question or the doubt that is just nagging you that you can't seem to shake? Go ahead and write that down. And you're not going to have to share this with anyone. This is just between you and God. So write that down. So this is an exercise about being honest with ourselves and with God. So do you have something? Right, type that out. And then we're going to take a couple minutes and I'm going to invite you to go to God with that question. I want to invite you to talk to God for the next few minutes. And you can say whatever you'd like to him. But what's most important is that you're going to him with your question. So go ahead and pray to God now. And then I'll, in another minute or two, I'll, I'll close. So this time is yours to be with God and talk to him. God in heaven, you are big enough to handle all of our questions, all of our doubts, all of our anger. Let us bring those to you, Lord. And I pray with anticipation the ways you'll answer people today, maybe even the way you answered them just now. Continue to speak. Continue to give us exactly what you know we need in whatever form that takes. So God, thank you for being with me over the last week, for carrying me through doubts and crises and encouraging me with those who have the great cloud of witnesses who, has come, who have come before me. 
I pray the same for every person here. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.